You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Friday, May 1st. I'm Megan Cattell. And I'm Kira Long. New York officials are preparing to reopen portions of the state that have been less impacted by the coronavirus. We talked to Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, who's leading that effort in Western New York State. We don't want to stay closed any longer than necessary, but the worst scenario would be to open prematurely before we are ready. The ongoing risks of exposure to coronavirus have led many New York City foster care agencies to suspend in-person family visits. That's upsetting parents and advocates who worry about the impact this could have on kids. Their ability to have regular contact with their parents is really important. And the pandemic is also creating financial pressure for students who are the first in their families to go to college. I was really happy and excited and like, you know, throwing like happy dances all over the place, but then I had to come back to reality. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News, I'm Asim Shukla. Deaths from coronavirus in New York State reached their lowest level in over a month yesterday, falling to under 300. New hospitalizations have not declined in the past few days and are stuck at roughly 900 daily admissions. A nationwide rent strike began today, and reports indicate it could be the biggest such strike in decades. Here in New York City, tenant groups like Housing Justice for All are calling on Governor Andrew Cuomo to provide relief for those who can't pay their rent. Activists point to similar moves in other states. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of the few politicians to actually endorse the strike, but efforts to pass rent relief continue in Albany. Today, Governor Cuomo reiterated that he will not issue any orders to suspend rent. More on the potential impacts of the rent strike later in the program. Governor Cuomo also confirmed today that schools across New York State will stay closed through the rest of the academic year. Dozens of other states lifted their stay-at-home orders yesterday and are allowing some aspects of normal life to resume today. Those moves were criticized this morning by Mayor Bill de Blasio. He said it's too early for that kind of opening in New York City. We're not going to let that happen here. That's the bottom line. As I said yesterday, we, we do not expect a perfect linear you know, march to exactly what we want in a way of normalcy. De Blasio also announced the list of streets that will be closed to vehicles starting on Monday. He said the move is needed to create more outdoor space for social distancing as the weather warms up. New Yorkers who miss the hustle and bustle of urban living can check out an album released by the New York Public Library today. Missing Sounds of New York includes audio of things we once took for granted, like music in subway stations and cheers at baseball games. And as the mayor acknowledged, pleasantly warm weather arrives tomorrow. Skies will clear this evening, giving way to partly cloudy conditions in the upper 60s Saturday and lower 70s on Sunday. If you're going outside, don't forget to wear a mask. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Asim Shukla. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo released further guidelines on his plan for reopening New York State. In order to do that safely, his team is taking a region-by-region approach. The 17 counties in western New York are preparing to reopen businesses as soon as May 15th, when the state's pause order will expire. But how will this reopening be done safely? I talked with Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, who is in charge of the western region's reopening, on the state's plans. While I'm focused on Western New York, I'm, what I'm doing there is devising policies that can be replicated throughout the state. First of all, we're going to follow the CDC guidelines and make sure there's been a 14-day decline in positive cases. We're going to be monitoring the hospitalization in areas where 
Uh, there are people that need to be in the hospital, what their rate is and do they have enough capacity, making sure you wear your mask and making sure that people in certain settings are wearing gloves and other protective equipment depending on what their business is. And creating workspaces where not just safe for the employer, but also will the employees feel safe to go back there? They're not going to want to go back to the early industries we've identified, like construction and manufacturing, unless they feel very confident that there'll be enough disinfectant and there'll be protocols where they're not congregating with other people. And maybe there's not a break room or a lunch room and they have to maybe be in staggered shifts and a certain percent will work different days of the week. So all these have to be done to instill confidence in the workforce it seems like it's up to the individual businesses to make up a plan, but what is the oversight going to look like from the state to make sure that businesses are doing this? Are there going to be repercussions for businesses that don't comply? What's that going to look like? There absolutely will be, and that is an important enforcement mechanism that you talk about. We can rely on people and their goodwill to do what's right. We also want to let them know that if they don't, there are consequences. Some of our construction sites that do essential work are open now. We're constantly monitoring to make sure that they have social distancing, the six feet between workers, and that they're wearing masks, and that they have a lot of places they can sanitize their hands and their equipment as they go forth. So we're not just leaving it up to individual businesses. They have to have their plan approved by the state in order to reopen, whether it's a specific industry or a particular mom and pop shop, a little restaurant would have to have a plan that is, that is authorized by the local Empire State Development Agency, and we'll make sure that the people know what they say they're going to do and that they actually do it. We don't want to stay closed any longer than necessary, but the worst scenario would be to open prematurely before we are ready. I can hear that you are taking this very seriously and you don't want to open up too prematurely. So I wanted to ask about foreseeing the movement between western New York counties. How are you preparing for, for this to happen once the weather is getting good and people are traveling? Well, what we're going to make sure we do is don't have what the governor is calling attractive nuisances. Some of the fairs and some of the festivals and the concerts and, and all the things that people love to travel around the state and visit, we will not be having those until the entire state is reopened and we feel confident that it's safe. And we're not anywhere close to that yet. I was just answering phone calls in upstate New York about people, should we still have our county fair at the end of July? I said, I wouldn't plan on that because what you're doing is creating an environment where you're attracting people from outside your county. Your own county may have numbers that are acceptable, but if you're inviting people to travel throughout the state, that's how it spreads. The whole idea is to have more isolation from each other until we get through. This is not permanent. This is not forever. We'll be talking about this this time next year about how we overcame this. So we're going to be asking people to continue the sacrifice, knowing that we should have recreation available to people. People need to get outdoors, and that's why we're going to be thoughtful about what activities are going to be allowed, but certainly not large gatherings of people. That's what we're trying so hard to avoid. That was Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul on the state's regional plan to reopen New York businesses. Many parents with children in foster care are now facing an unthinkable situation. Because of the COVID-19 pandemic, they're no longer able to visit their children. New York State and City have released emergency guidelines saying in-person visits should continue if they can happen safely. But they've left the ultimate decision up to the nonprofit agencies that place and monitor kids in foster care. As Anya Schultz reports, most have decided that, for now, parental visits aren't worth the health risk. Ambrosia Ford is 30 years old. She lives in a rural town in upstate New York and has a daughter who's two and a half. She's very bubbly, energetic, generally a very happy, very happy two-year-old. 
A couple weeks ago, Ford took her daughter to visit with the child's dad, even though she has an order of protection against him. He'd been abusive to Ford in the past, but she thought visits were still allowed, and she wanted her daughter to be able to see her dad. Child Protective Services didn't agree. That evening, they took her daughter. She's now in foster care. Ford can only see her on FaceTime. She doesn't have the attention span to sit and FaceTime. I mean, when we first get on the video call, she's happy seeing me. But when, when she noticed, when we start saying goodbye, she gets very, very upset. Ford said caseworkers were coming in and out of her home before taking her daughter, but now they won't let her go see her daughter. And it's been really hard. I, I've never been away from her in two years. And, like, I am an addict, and addicts cope by using. And I'm trying not to do that because of my child. 19-year-old Jasmine in the Bronx has also been trying to regain custody of her daughter. She asked that we not use her last name because her case is still open. Jasmine has a developmental disability, and when she gave birth last September, the hospital was concerned about her ability to care for the baby. They reported her to a child abuse hotline, and Children's Services put the baby in foster care. Since then, Jasmine's had supervised visits with her daughter twice a week, but for the past month, she's only been able to see her eight-month-old baby over video. I really miss her so much. Because I've been seeing other mothers with their kids in there, and now I'm looking like, where's my daughter? Like, come on. New York state law gives parents the right to visit their children in foster care, as long as the court says it doesn't put the child in danger. But throw a global pandemic into the mix, and that safety issue gets a lot more complicated. Now foster agencies face a question. What's a greater risk, the spread of a disease or the emotional harm of family separation? Officials from the federal, state, and city level have suggested in-person visits should continue if they're safe. But New York City contracts with 23 nonprofit foster agencies, and the ultimate decision of whether parents and children can see each other lies with them. What we're actually seeing on the ground is very different from the guidance. Muriel Bell is a social worker with the Bronx Defenders, a public defense office that represents parents and family court. She doesn't know of any in-person visits that have happened since the outbreak. Foster care workers and, and ACS caseworkers are essential employees. They're not really acting as essential employees right now. ACS says its workers will still enter homes when it's to safely investigate child abuse or neglect. And if parents can't visit their children in person, they'll supply devices for families who need them for video visits. Audia McEachran is a supervisor at a foster agency called Rising Ground. She says her agency is doing nearly all visits virtually because of health risks. With COVID-19, we do have to um, adhere to social distancing. So a lot of parents have decided that they don't want their children outside and they would prefer to see their children um, via video chat or phone calls. The idea that, in the short term, virtual visits could prevent the spread of disease makes sense for Carrie Moles. She's the executive director of New York City's CASA, an organization that assigns volunteers to assist children in family court. It's very common that the foster parent is elderly. So having any level of exposure to people coming in and out of the house um, could put them at risk. 
But Mole says parental visits are also important for kids' development. About half of foster kids in New York City are under five years old. Their ability to have regular contact with their parents is really important to their development, to their ability to sort of cope with the separation, to deal with the trauma that they might have experienced. Plus, in order to get their kids back, parents have to show the government that they're ready. That could mean parenting classes, substance abuse programs, or successful supervised visits. As parents get closer to regaining custody of their kids, these visits get longer, sometimes overnight or for the weekend. It's part of the parent demonstrating to the court uh, that they're able to be present for their child and interact in a positive, healthy way with their child. And New York City recognizes how important these visits are. The city spent $1.3 million over the past two years on a program to improve family time. But there's also a ticking clock that has many parents nervous. If children are in foster care for 15 out of 22 months, the state can start the process of terminating a parent's rights. So the thought of not having visits worries activists like Alexis Pluse. She runs a nonprofit called Truth Farm that helps parents recovering from addiction. They're all on a timeline. They all have to meet certain requirements, see their children a certain amount of times. Nobody knows right now what their rights are going to be down the road when this is, um, you know, when the New York State pause is lifted. She says for now, one thing seems to be clear. The longer the virus lasts, the longer parents will go without seeing their kids, the longer kids will be in foster care. Anya Schultz, Columbia Radio News. For the past month, with so many New Yorkers out of work, some renters have been calling for rent to be canceled. Now they're taking matters into their own hands by beginning a rent strike starting today. Many landlords are likely to sue tenants for rent, although the housing courts are now closed. Reporter Lauren Peace looks at what landlords and strikers may find when the courts reopen. On a typical day, New York City housing courts process hundreds of cases across every borough. Nikib Sadiq is the housing director for Legal Aid in Brooklyn. Normally, he spends every day in housing court, and he says the courthouses themselves are a zoo. You're looking for your courtroom, dozens and dozens of people everywhere, only a few bench, benches to sit on, and there are people sitting on the floor, you know, and it's just mass chaos. But in early March, New York courts closed when the stay-at-home order was put in place. Then, a moratorium was placed on eviction filings. Now, the courthouses are empty. Sadiq anticipates there's going to be a surge in cases filed after the moratorium ends. Today's rent strike will likely increase the number of cases. And if the floodgates open? I think there's just probably no way they could really handle it. That could have serious consequences. Aldegracia Pierre Outerbridge is an attorney who represents both landlords and tenants. She says filings in housing court aren't just about the money. They can be about really serious safety concerns, too. So the time it takes to process a case matters. One of the problems specific to quarantine is roommate disputes that result in violence. It's a difficult situation where folks who, who didn't used to spend 24-7 at home and already had a, a hard situation, a tough relationship with their roommates, right, are now at home with them 24-7. So we're getting these calls. Pierre Outerbridge says attorneys are doing their best to negotiate outside the courtroom. But both Pierre Outerbridge and Sadiq say as far as they're aware, there is no plan in place for how the courts will reopen. Lauren Peace, Columbia Radio News. 
And now, the latest installment of our series, Voices in the City. Today, we hear from Louise Lingat, an attorney intern with the Administration for Children's Services in Elmhurst, Queens. This month, she was sworn in virtually to the New York State Bar. A lot of the courts nowadays are doing their emergency cases on Skype. I do family law, and a lot of the cases we have deal with children um, because even though we have this pandemic, unfortunately, the world can't stop because we don't want um, something dangerous to happen or something uh, horrible to happen to a child. So when I could have the option of doing a virtual swearing in, I said yes. Uh, my ceremony started at 1.30. Um, I knew the dining room was where I wanted to be because they said no windows in, our, in the email. Um, and I got dressed as if I was going in person because we had to dress up. That was part of one of the requirements. Um, my dad was actually sitting in my dining room and my sister too. My mom was in the bedroom because there was a live stream people from all over the world could watch. So my family back in the Philippines, they were able to watch. My family in Australia, they were able to watch. After all of it, it felt really great. And it's just a, it's a nice feeling to have, to know that you can finally be called an Esquire. So it's a great feeling. And now for our next installment in our commentary series, reporter Lucas Brady Woods talks about what he's learned in the year and a half since he changed careers from film production to journalism. There's an ancient Roman city called Volubilis that's been abandoned for almost 2,000 years. It overlooks a valley in northern Morocco that's covered in olive groves and dotted with herds of sheep, just like it was in ancient times. I was there with my mom and dad in 2018, about two weeks before my 29th birthday. And the ruins are huge. You can see the giant triumphal arch in the old central square from miles away. There's a small museum nearby, but visitors are largely free to walk around the ruins as they please. And we wandered around for hours. There are temples, sacrificial altars, mosaics, public baths, olive presses. You get the idea. The place has been looted over the centuries, so many of the buildings just look like big piles of rocks. But there are details that tell a story about a community, like the grooves in the road from ox carts or door jams worn down from eons of footsteps. There's even a giant stone penis still marking where the brothel was. But in all seriousness, small human touches like these resonate deeply with me. I've always had a thing for history. Thinking about humans of the past helps me gain perspective on my own life. The ancient world is as alien as science fiction, but it was actually real at some point. And being at a historical site is way different than reading about it. It's the closest thing you can get to seeing what history was actually like in person. That's why I think of Volubilis when I think of that trip to Morocco. And that trip marked a turning point in my life. About a year earlier, at the end of 2017, I quit my job at a film company after sticking it out for five years. I didn't have much to show for it, other than an anxiety disorder and more debt than when I started. I really regretted wasting so much time in that job. I stayed for so long out of some weird combination of complacency and determination. I convinced myself to stick it out until I couldn't anymore, so I quit. I spent most of 2018 trying to freelance as a video producer without much success. I had a few interviews for full-time jobs, but they didn't pan out. By that fall, I was completely depressed. I was also 100% sure that I wasn't on the right path. I was quickly losing what little drive I had left to produce movies. I needed to step off my old path and blaze a new one, but I didn't know what my life would look like on that new path, and that terrified me. 
I thought I would be a failure if I just threw away my film school education and years of work. Then I went to Morocco. I'm always tempted to say that I had a revelation at an ancient ruin in the Moroccan desert. It's a romantic thought. But if I'm honest, it's more likely that going on an adventure with my mom and dad helped me see things clearly. My parents are very different people, but they see the world similarly. They have an undying fascination. They see humanity in every person they meet. These were unspoken principles that they ingrained in me, principles that allowed me to connect so deeply with a place like Volubilis. I think being with my parents was a reminder that I need to live by those principles. So that's what I did. Almost immediately after I got back to New York, I decided to apply to journalism school. I stepped off my old path and onto a new one. And pretty much instantly, I felt so relieved. It was the most significant decision of my life so far, and it paid off. I got into a journalism school I never dreamed I would. Even now, trying to get a job in the midst of the deepest economic crash since the Great Depression, I draw on that decision to give me strength. I feel daunted, but confident. Because I know I'm on the right path, and because I know people have been overcoming life's hardships for thousands of years. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Megan Cattell. And I'm Kira Long. Life for college students has been turned upside down by coronavirus. And for first-generation college students, the challenges can be even tougher. Road trips and camper vans are a favorite summer pastime in the U.S. The RV and camper van rental business is hoping this summer will be the same, despite the pandemic. These stories and more coming up. But first, these headlines. Every summer, New York State sends teenagers and young adults on paid work placements. It's the largest program of its kind in the nation. Last year, New York's Summer Youth Employment Program found placements for 75,000 participants. But this summer, thanks to the coronavirus, the state announced that it's suspending the program. Eileen DeVolt is a professor at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. I asked her what the impact of the coronavirus is going to be on the employment outlook for young people over the summer months. A lot of the jobs that we think of young people having over a summer, working in an ice cream shop, for example, these kinds of very low wage job opportunities for young people are just not going to be available this year. And frankly, we may find older people accepting those kinds of low wage jobs if their jobs have disappeared completely. These programs typically help youths from sort of low income communities and backgrounds. What does it mean for people who already come from economically disadvantaged backgrounds to not have this when it comes to looking for work in the future? It's critical at this point, people in the lowest income quintile in the US right now are the most likely to be completely unemployed right at this particular moment. Those kids, uh, kids from exactly those families, are the ones where their money will actually help their family survive if they have a basic job um, like this, even if it's a low-income position. What having any job does for a, a young person is to teach them how to show up on time. How do you be a worker in the United States? What's expected of you? You know, working with a boss, working with coworkers, all of those things are really crucial skills. And 
so in that way, in the long run, I think it, it hurts these young people even more. What sort of options do they have without this promise of summer work and pay, especially during the pandemic? And what does that mean for them and their families? I have no idea what other choices they have. I think the answer is they won't have other choices. I think it's going to mean if they're graduating from high school and we're counting on some of that money to help them begin college, for example, it may mean that they won't feel like they can begin college. Uh, that that just isn't a possibility for them. Uh, for others, it it won't help put food on their family's tables. And for many families, that's going to continue to be a really critical issue, certainly through this summer and even longer. One solution that's been proposed is that, you know, some of these jobs could be done virtually and that the state is actually missing a huge opportunity by not examining that possibility. I don't know how much of that can be done virtually. I mean, the people I know who are in those kinds of jobs here in Ithaca, you know, are running camp-like programs, and none of those are probably going to be happening. Uh, If we're talking about low-income students, then what's their um, connectivity situation? You know, do they have the ability to work virtually? Not everybody has a computer that is going to support Zoom, for example. That's a really important point. Thank you. Eileen DeVolt from Cornell University, thank you for being here today. Thank you, Kiara. It's been great. Today is National College Decision Day. It's the deadline for students who have been accepted to colleges to decide which school they'll go to. It can be a difficult choice that's further complicated by the emotional and financial burdens of coronavirus. But one group of students is facing a unique set of challenges. As Jamaris Perez finds, for those who are first-generation students, the first in their families to go to college, deciding where to go is just the beginning in a series of challenges. Many college students have fond memories of the moment they were accepted to the school of their dreams. There's crying, screaming, laughing, and then more crying. Like in this YouTube clip of a student reading her acceptance email from UPenn. Hey, Gary's going to bed! Why are you so happy? I'm going to bed! But when 21-year-old Kiabet Leal read the letter and email that told her she'd been accepted to both of her dream schools, the news was bittersweet. I was really happy and excited and like, you know, throwing like happy dances all over the place. But then I had to come back to reality and sit down and just be like, hey, guys, so I got accepted here and I really want to go here. How are we going to, you know, do this? That's because Leal is a first generation student. Neither of her parents went to college. They're both from Mexico and only have a middle school education. Lil's mom is a babysitter, and her dad is a waiter at an Italian restaurant in Midtown. They've had fewer opportunities to work high-paying jobs. So, as proud as they were of Lil's aspirations, they just couldn't afford them. Lil dreamed about going away for college, like she had seen in the movies. Instead, she's going to a local school and living at home in Astoria, Queens. So my mom's in the kitchen right now, blasting her music. Typical... She comes and washes dishes and, you know, she does all that stuff. And then my sister can't really hear the TV, so she has to put it up really, really loud. And then there's me in the middle of both of these loud noises trying to do homework. According to the Center for First Generation Success, 
first-gen students like Leal make up almost half of all undergraduates enrolled at four-year universities. Its data also shows that the median household income for first-generation students is almost 30% below the national average. This means these students can have a harder time getting accepted to, affording, and succeeding in college. Now, the global pandemic is highlighting these obstacles. Leal's a senior at Queens College and gets help from New York State's SEEK program, which stands for Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge. SEEK offers supports for first-gen students, like Leal, and helps her with tuition, but she still has to cover a lot on her own. And, like, some classes need so many things. You need the textbooks, but you also need these other books. And I'm like, wow, like, do I really need this right now? Juggling full-time classes and work means Leo has a lot going on. I was working two jobs and, you know, I was taking, I believe I was taking 21 credits. I'm not sure though. I think it was 18 or 21 credits my freshman year. Um, Wait, and you were taking 18 plus credits and working two jobs your freshman year? How did you balance all of that? I honestly don't know. Leo says it was really stressful. Her parents didn't have the experience to guide her on studying for finals or navigating other kinds of challenges college can bring, registering for classes, being on hold with financial aid. Allison Levy is a programming director at CUNY's College Access Research and Action Program. She says it's hard to get help at home when you don't have someone in your family who's been there and done that. There are something like 35 different steps you have to complete for financial aid, and uh, making a mistake in any one of those can really take money off the table for students. And there are other circumstances to consider. It's also a really daunting process of navigating these things possibly in a language that's not theirs. And Levy says there are cultural differences too. We do sometimes have students who maybe aren't permitted to go away or aren't encouraged to go away to college because um, they have home responsibilities that you know are as expected as, um, as part of their family. Like caring for younger siblings or helping with a family business. For Leal, this means paying for her school expenses and chipping in with her family's bills when money is tight. She was working as a hostess at a restaurant, but now restaurants are closed. So Leal and her dad are both out of work. Her dad filed for unemployment last month and bills are piling up. She's stressed out and worried that her teachers aren't aware of her circumstances. I'm over here thinking how I'm going to have to help pay for rent or stuff like that. You know, people don't realize that there's more to life than like handing in papers. Andrea Lopez works at Columbia's Community College Research Center. She conducts research on student support services among underrepresented students. She says first-gen students don't just worry that teachers won't understand their struggles, but also that they'll look at them differently. When I first got into college, I thought I was just going to be like, a number to people like yeah we accept like people like her you know first gen and like she's latina but she's also american blah 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 lopez is worried about how covid will impact first generation students who already felt like they didn't belong in college uh, we may not see them return the following semester i feel like those groups are at risk for postponing or even dropping out completely stacy castell is ceo of the coalition for college access she offers this advice to first-gen students who may be feeling discouraged. We know that things come along in all of our lives that sometimes we may have had a big plan to go across the country and now we need to stay home for a semester or a year. Um, 
And I think that's okay. I just think you don't have to forget your dream. You just may have to approach it a little bit differently. Back in Queens, despite all the challenges, Kiabet Leal is determined to finish her degree with a double major in drama and elementary education. I remember I was really nervous and scared to say that I was a first-generation college student, and I felt ashamed of it, but I embrace it now. People want to see you, you know, be a change, and people actually believe in you. As she works on her lesson plans from home, Leal can't wait to be back in the classroom. She wants to set an example for her future students. Jamaris Perez... Columbia Radio News. Shelter-in-place orders have a lot of New Yorkers wondering about their summer vacations. How do you go on vacation while maintaining social distance? One option is to hit the road with your own home, in a camper or RV. Tate Glass hears from one camper van company about what it's doing to try and win travelers over. 24-year-old Kevin Wiesinger lives on the Upper West Side. He wants out of the city this summer. Like, I would give a lot to not be here, you know? Like, this is the worst place to, to be quarantined probably in the country. He's considering a camper van, but he doesn't have a car. So he's got questions, like, how would he pick up a van? All transportation right now in New York is just either difficult or dangerous to use. Gunjin Prakash is founder of the Facebook group Families Who Love to Travel. The group has almost 30,000 members. And she says there's been a lot of interest in camper vans and RVs for summer vacation. But she's also seen concerns. What if they close the parking for RVs? Or, or they, they will be stuck in a different state? Carrie Ruvison is with Escape Camper Vans. The company has over 10 locations across the U.S. and Canada. About half of its business comes from international travelers, which has seen a massive drop-off. But Rulofsen says there's been an uptick in interest from New Yorkers who want a safe vacation and are considering camper vans. You have your rental car, your hotel, and your kitchen all in one. To ease customer safety concerns, Escape Camper Vans is ramping up cleaning, limiting the number of staff who come in contact with the vans, and spacing out appointments for pickups. In New Jersey, Road Bear RV Rentals is being extra lenient with cancellations. Rulofsen says Escape is doing that and more. And so we lowered our daily rates for next year in an effort to help people rebook. Rulofsen says renters could see savings up to $1,000. As for Wiesinger, if he's not in a camper van by July, he's considering another way to get out of New York, a trip back home to see his family. Tay Glass, Columbia Radio News. This is Uptown Radio, Sounds of the City. So I got a text and was like, hey, it's Mike. Here's how that lemon bundt cake turned out, by the way, with a picture of this really delicious-looking lemon bundt cake. Brooklyn resident Cody Heiger on dating during quarantine. Okay, so clearly this dude has the wrong number. I did not talk to anybody about a cake. And then he was like, oh wait, this isn't Leah? And I was like, no. And he was like, oh no, I had this virtual hinge date and he was like who are you I was like you first (laughs) and (laughs) and so he sent a picture of himself and I was like all right okay interest has has gone up we don't have a next date plan we had a FaceTime date last night 
<laughs> but I would be open to meeting in person um, for sure. Uptown Radio is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. To wrap up today's show, another installment in our commentary series. Reporter Asim Shukla has a side career as an amateur actor. He's been appearing in plays since he was a teenager. He says that some of those shows have pushed boundaries, but only one ran afoul of the law. I have done a lot of weird shows. I'm telling you, I will do anything for an audience. Four years ago, my friend Steve invited me to be in an immersive play. The story took place in an alternate version of the Jazz Age, where rich people could pay to come back from the dead. The really wild part, though, wasn't the play. It was the venue. Steve had partnered with this guy named Eugene, who ran a real speakeasy. I mean, like, an actual illegal bar. It was on Yerba Buena Island, which is in the middle of San Francisco Bay. He called it the Signal Room, and it was on top of an abandoned Coast Guard tower. On the night of the show, we hiked up through a eucalyptus wood to get to the abandoned tower and snuck in through a loose board. Then, we climbed four flights of creaky stairs. They felt like they might give out at any minute. It was pitch black. At the top, you could see everything, from the fog rolling in through the Golden Gate to the sunlight on the Oakland Hills. Eugene had decorated the walls inside with old maps, newspapers, and theater programs. In one corner was a full bar. In another, somehow, he had a working upright piano. Steve led us in a quick final run-through, and as the sun set over the city, we lit candles. And that was when the voice broke in from a megaphone outside. We know you're in there, and we need you to get out right now. We blew out the candles, and everyone got down on the floor, just in time because the cops started shining floodlights through the windows. Crawling into the dark stairwell, Steve bombarded Eugene with messages. Had this ever happened before? What should we do? Did he have a backup plan? Eugene messaged back, Just be quiet and wait until the cops leave. They get tips all the time. They never actually come inside to check. I had no experience of hiding out from the San Francisco police, and we hoped Eugene was right, but it didn't seem like these guys were going anywhere. If anything, the shouting was getting louder. Soon enough, the cops announced they were coming in and started banging a truncheon on the door downstairs. Steve yelled, We're coming out! The four policemen asked us what the hell we were doing. Steve told them, We're doing a play. They asked where the audience was. We said, they're not here yet. The cops sighed and radioed back that they'd removed, quote, some artsy group from the tower. They told us we were trespassing on military property and that we could face months in prison and a hefty fine. For about 10 minutes, I really thought I was going to jail. But finally, they told us the Coast Guard was not going to press charges and to leave and never come back. So we didn't. We went to get drinks, legally, to drown our sorrows about the play that could have been. When I think about this episode, I do smile about our tiny act of criminality. I'm a rule-following kind of guy, and this whole thing was pretty exciting by my standards. Mostly, I think about the unanswered questions. How did Eugene find this place? Why did the cops pick that night, of all nights, to crack down? And most of all, how the hell did anyone get a piano up there? Asim is still acting, but he's limited his site-specific performances to people's backyards, with their permission. Only one time did a landlady get mad, and she didn't call the police. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Sarah Gilbard ran our show from Rochester, New York. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Will Walkie in Duxbury, Massachusetts, with help from Cecily Moran in Exeter, Rhode Island, Jamaris Perez in Miramar, Florida, and Anya Schultz in San Francisco. Senior editor Emily Pizzacreta in Manhattan and assistant editor Lucas Brady Woods in Brooklyn led our copy team. Asim Shukla in Manhattan, Lauren Peace in Rochester, New York, and Tay Glass in Ontario, Canada brought us today's news. Brett Forrest managed our website today from Denver, and Lucas Brady Woods brought us today's news from Brooklyn. Our instructors Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York, and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Megan Cattell in Manhattan. And I'm Kira Long, also in Manhattan. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening, and stay safe.